Welcome to Fierce City, where we will delve into the people, places and events from the history of the greatest capital city in the world and our home, London. I'm Satu. And I'm PJ. And we are your hosts on this journey to discover the lesser-known history of London. London is, and always has been, a hotbed of arts and culture. It's seen various artistic movements come and go throughout its long history, but I think that few are as cool as the Pre-Raphaelites. The Pre-Raphaelites were a group of handsome, artistic rebels living in London who came together to form a club designed to fight against the London art establishment, which ultimately led to their crew becoming the celebrities of the day. This story travels us back to London in the mid-19th century, where we will meet characters like the child genius John Millet, William Mad Hunt, supermodel Lizzie Siddle, and pin-up boy Dante Rossetti. Their lives and works of art inspired a BBC's TV series called Desperate Romantics, which has been described by the producers as like Entourage, but with easels. I have not seen the programme Entourage. We're going to follow these young artists on their rise to fame. We'll talk a little bit about each of the founding members of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, some of the amazing women who came into their sphere, and the famous art critic John Ruskin, who's uh, quite a character, and we'll see what his impact on the Pre-Raphaelite rise and rise and rise to fame was. So come along with us as we discuss the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. London in the mid-19th century was coming out the other end of the Industrial Revolution, and London was leading the way as a centre of industry. The Industrial Revolution was causing a lot of backlash, including in London, where there was major rebellions like the Chartist Rebellion, which some of our characters would have seen parading under their windows through central London. These people were rebelling against all the newfangled machines that had come into the world and were causing pretty much death and destruction to people across the country. I mean, I suppose they were mangling people, literally. cut off their hands. This is like Victorian children in factories doing looms and like they would lose their little hands. So it's no wonder that the people of London kind of took to the streets. Absolutely. And I suppose in order to do that, the best way to get a voice was that working men wanted to have a vote, which is where the Charters Rebellion came from. Yeah, so they were people who rebelled by uh, walking through the streets as a form of protest. But there was definitely a spirit of rebellion in the air. And in the art world, that spirit of rebellion would be picked up by the gentlemen we're about to talk about. And zooming out a bit, at the time, in the art world, the establishment was the Royal Academy of Arts. And the Royal Academy was founded in 1768, and it became the place to train if you were an artist. It was the pretty much single arbiter of everyone in the fine arts. Being elected to the Academy was a part of having a successful career as a painter or a sculptor, and everyone wanted to have their work displayed in the annual summer exhibition. The Royal Academy today can be found on Piccadilly, housed in one of the few remaining London mansions, Burlington House. But in 1848, it was in Trafalgar Square within the relatively new National Gallery building, and it only moved to its grander address in 1867. The Royal Academy of 1848 was very strict and stuffy. They didn't admit women, even though there were two female artists among its own founders, and they had a very strong party line on how art should be and should look. Our story begins with the three main founders of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, 
finding each other. And the first pre-Raphaelite we'll talk about is John Everett Millet. Millet was a child prodigy, and he was admitted into the Royal Academy at the age of just 10. His family were quite well off, and they supported his natural talent, moving from Jersey to London in 1838, solely so that John could train at the Royal Academy. They settled in Gower Street, which is in Bloomsbury near the British Museum. It was a nice part of town in the mid-19th century, and it mainly had lawyers and architects residing there. Millet's parents doted on him, and they set up a studio for him in the back parlour of their house. It was nice to have a spare back parlour. Millet was really, really successful at the Royal Academy, and he was bullied because of how many prizes he won. But it didn't deter Millet, and he kept being top of the class. By most accounts, he managed to develop into a young adult without having too much of an ego, despite his genius. His contemporaries noted that his main vice was his vanity, and he loved his nose. And also, he expected other people to carry things for him. Millet is probably, pretty much undisputedly, the most talented of the pre-Raphaelite artists. When it comes to being a great artist, it obviously never hurts to have money in back parlours and extensive parental belief and support. And Millet was the one of the group whose work defines not only the pre-Raphaelites, but Victorian art in general. We'll describe some of his greatest hits when we get to them, and hopefully some of his paintings will be recognisable from these descriptions. And if not, you've always got Google. The next pre-Raphaelite brother is a William Holman Hunt, or Mad Hunt to his mates. Such lads. He had less genteel beginnings and was born in Cheapside, being apprenticed in the city as a teenager. Despite this background, he had an artist's disposition and he used his lunch breaks to just draw people in the city. This drew some positive attention and at the tender age of 16, he decided that art was to be his career. As you can expect, art was not a moneymaker, so he fought tooth and nail to get any commissions, and his nickname of being Mad Hunt came from his steely determination and furious working style. He had tried to get into the Royal Academy a few times, but had failed. In a huge stroke of luck, well, he made his own luck, I suppose, because he was sitting in the British Museum one day, sketching some of the paintings in there, and just over his shoulder comes peeping another boy. And who could it be but Millet? So Holman Hunt very fortunately was spotted by Millet, who really liked his drawing and struck up a friendship with him. This isn't the last time we'll hear of Millet being really successful at making friends. And that friendship was really important for Hunt as well, because that got him into the Royal Academy. Millet sponsored him to get in and really like championed him. And then his friend made in there and they got to study together. Millet and Hunt were firm friends, but they were more than anything dedicated to their art. Millet because of his natural talent, and Hunt because of his ambition. While studying, they were inspired by a group of German artists called the Nazarenes, who were working in Rome as a brotherhood, and they wanted to buck the trend and go back to the medieval style of realism in painting. In comparison, the set at Royal Academy style was to elevate work beyond realism into a sort of lofty ideal. They had a style called the Grand Manor. The Grand Manor was named and perfected by Sir Joshua Reynolds, who is the top dog of the Royal Academy back in the 18th century. His portraits were of wealthy society people who were presented as if they've just sprung from a pastely version of the Greek myths. All flowing robes, everyone's very glowing and beautiful. 
This has been the main art style for a lot of decades by the time we get to 1848. And I think everyone just really wanted a breath of fresh air. So the Royal Academy ran and still runs a show each summer, which in 1848 was quite the society event. The Royal Academy had 100,000 paying visitors during its six-week summer exhibition run. And that's a lot of people if you consider that the population in London at the time was about 2 million, and most of them were in extreme poverty. These exhibitions wouldn't be what you'd expect today with all of the art easily viewable front and centre at eye level. Instead, because there were so many pieces of art to display, they put the paintings all over the wall. The best pieces that the Royal Academy thought were worthy were displayed at eye level. But if you were kind of okay, you may get a top (laughs) corner of a wall somewhere. So if your eyesight was bad, you couldn't even see it. A major snub would be right up in the corner by the ceiling. And speaking of that snub, (laughs) when Millet and Hunt got both of their pieces actually able to be displayed in the 1848 exhibition, which was quite a coup in itself, their paintings were still in the corner. This start was hardly a blaze of glory, but they did have one admirer in the form of Dante Gabriele Rossetti. He is the third crucial member of this group. So this is the special moment when the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood is really coming together. When Rossetti saw Holman Hunt's work, The Eve of St. Agnes, he saw a painting based on his favourite poet Keats, and this ignited something in him. It was the perfect combination of not traditional style and his absolute favourite literary love. The art showed real life. The pre-Raphaelites really loved to fill every inch of their canvases with something vibrant and detailed. The grand manor paintings often have quite a lot of empty space around them to make them look very grand and haughty. But in a painting like The Eve of St Agnes, there's some drunk men rolling around on the floor, falling off the edge of the painting, there's an eloping couple, there's like an open door with a key, and in the background a party going on. So that must have seemed really different in the context of other kind of fairly standard at the time art that you would see at the exhibition. Oh, totally. It's like information overload, but that can be really thrilling. So Rossetti lived at 7 Cleveland Street, which is only about a five-minute walk from Gower Street, where Millier lived. And despite the proximity, Rossetti lived in a far less salubrious address. Dante Rossetti was known to be very handsome. And to point this out, in that Desperate Romantics BBC TV show I mentioned (laughs) earlier, the actor that played him is Aidan Turner, who is Poldark. Not only was he super handsome but he was like the cool kid in school. So he didn't turn up to class and he was a published poet. Despite his good looks and his cool guy attitude, he didn't actually think that he was that gifted as an artist and he thought his poetry was where his real talent lied. He was admitted into the Royal Academy, but he found it really hard to work through all of the different schools in the Royal Academy. So when you were at the Academy, you had to kind of pass through various stages to get to painting. So you had to go through antique school and then living model school before you could finally be given a brush and actually paint. Rossetti didn't have any time for these shenanigans and he left the Royal Academy and decided to get in with the literary elite instead and became quite a successful poet in his own right. Nevertheless, he kept up his art training through private lessons and was sure to keep a foot in the door with the art set. 
Life in Rossetti's family wasn't financially easy, but it did inspire a lot of art. His sister Christina Rossetti is one of the most famous Victorian poets, and a lot of people read her poem Goblin Market at school. It's sort of like a poem version of a pre-Raphaelite painting, lots of lush fruit and colours. So with Rossetti, Hunt and Millet, there were the three founding members of what would become the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. They were hanging out at Millet's house in Gower Street, and there they decided to become the founding members of their own secret society, which was looking for truth and realism in art. Now, initially, they called their group the League of Sincerity, (laughs) which I think is a rubbish title. It sounds like a kind of posh superhero group, and it didn't stick. So rather, they decided to alight on the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood as their name, which was based on the admiration of paintings that came before the Italian master Raphael. So their problem with a Raphael and all of the associated artists of the Renaissance was that they idealised everything they painted. The pre-Raphaelites really wanted their works to look realistic. They wanted to go back to before a sort of cynical, classicist Renaissance painting vibe and do like really, really real, authentic art. When I think of the pre-Raphaelites, I think of painting in HD, like all high definition. I completely agree with that. Like almost to the point where it's a bit too much. Like you're watching it on a really big flat screen and you're like, this is realism, my real life, and I can't take it. So Rossetti, Hunt and Millet also enlisted three of their friends to become part of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, or PRB, um, as they called themselves. And they were really cliquey. And they kind of even spoke about um, having their own house, which would have one bell saying PRB on it, and the other for non-members, which just said, please ring bell. This group was a bohemian to a fault, and they even challenged societal norms like mixing with people of lower classes despite some of their higher class status. And it was also said that they had voracious sexual appetites. They were very intimate with one another, and it has also been said that they could have been quite sexually fluid, and Millet and Hunt were so close that people thought they were having an affair. It wouldn't be fair to say that London was generally sexually liberated at the time, But the prudish attitudes we kind of now associate with Victorian London were more held by the upper classes and the poorer classes really had bigger things to worry about than things like premarital sex. Getting their hands cut off in looms. I really love a secret society, so I love all the details of what they got up to in this club of sincerity. One of my faves is that they had two magazines they set up dedicated entirely to themselves. One was called The Germ, of all things, and that was a normal sort of small magazine like university students might put together with poems and essays in it, including from Christina Rossetti, which was really the premium content. Obviously, they sold virtually no copies of this terrible magazine. Their other magazine was one that just recorded what they said at their meetings because they actually had official meetings of the PRB. And they probably thought they were so cool that everyone just wanted to hear what they had to say. Probably. I think this is great. So they were very on brand. They had like a full media empire going. And it is important to say that whilst this looks like a kind of couple of lads in a basement, you know, with their own private group, because it had Millet, who was so good, and these other cool artists, they probably were the envy of a lot of their peers and classmates. I think you're right. I think we've already seen how Millet is obviously great at connecting to people. And Rossetti as well, for all he's the cool kid, he did see this painting, like, reach out to them. And so they were good at friendship amongst each other. But my guess is that they had a lot of friends in London at this time. 
So whilst it's clearly a lads club, they weren't without strong female characters. Probably the most important female influence to the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood was Elizabeth Siddle, or Lizzie, to her mates. She lived on the Old Kent Road and worked near Leicester Square in a hat shop, sewing in the back room. She had to travel across the river each day and worked until eight each evening, so it's a real slog. Yeah, making hats is not easy. It's really hard work. Like, using arsenic to stiffen your hat brims, and it's all, like, pins and very difficult stuff. Hat shops were really important for other reasons, like men used to wait outside the milliners with the intention of chaperoning attractive young ladies' home. And one such, I want to call him admirer, but probably perv, is um, a gentleman called... (laughs) Is that wrong to say? No, it's perfect. It's true. Just hung around outside someone's work, waiting... And what, like, whichever was the prettiest hat maker who walked out... So Walter Deverell was one of these gentlemen, and he was also a wannabe member of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. He was a successful actor and was also at the Royal Academy. After the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood had been going on for about a year, Deverell was keen to join, but he just wasn't invited. And he saw his way in by maybe introducing to the Brotherhood a new model that they could use. So when he saw Lizzie sewing in the back room, he became smitten, but he also thought that she possessed the kind of beauty that the Brotherhood were all about. She was tall, with red hair and this natural beauty. He had to convince her to become a model, and in the 19th century, being an artist model was hardly a respectable pastime, and Deverell had to get his mum to plead with Lizzie and her family in order to allow her to become a model for the Brotherhood. As members of the Pre-Raphaelites were generally of a higher class, and on the basis that Lizzie just needed the money, she eventually agreed to become a model. And it didn't take long for her to become firm friends with the Brotherhood. The Royal Academy's summer exhibition was looming once more. In 1848, Millet and Hunt had exhibited their art to complete indifference from the establishment. In 1849, their new friend Rossetti had joined them, and they'd displayed again to complete indifference from the establishment. In 1850, something interesting finally happened. For the first time, the Academy had actually opened up the gallery to the press. Incredible that they weren't being reviewed by the newspapers. So now, not only was the Royal Academy show at the centre of the social season and the place to be seen, it was a place for national publicity for artists. The Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood exhibited their art, which was still shown in hard-to-see corners of the exhibition, having been largely ignored during the previous seasons. This year, they had press attention, and the critics hated it. Their take on realism was seen as kind of grotesque, and it was made even worse when the publication Town Talk and Table Talk outed this secret brotherhood and their mission. The backlash was tireless, and it even led to Charles Dickens sticking his oar in. A lead article in his weekly journal, The Household Words, mightily took the piss out of their work, and in particular, one scene, which was a painting called Christ in the Carpenter's Shop, which was berated by Dickens for its ugly portrayal of the situation. Christ in the Carpenter's Shop is a pretty rebellious painting. It's set in Jesus's dad's carpenting shop, and it shows Mary... adopted dad. 
I just don't know how to what says that at all. I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, it shows Jesus in his adoptive father's carpenter's shop. His uh, his bio dad's off the scene. Uh, it shows his mum Mary with wrinkles. So it does a good job of protesting against the convention that Mary has to look like a glowing angel of youth and purity. Most other PRB paintings revert to a sort of insipid portrayal of, you know, like gorgeous young shepherdesses in fields. I really like this painting. Elizabeth Siddle's in it, isn't she? Oh, okay. We're, lo- we're looking at the painting and I can't see her. There's Mary does have red hair, yeah, but she's wrinkly. If that's Elizabeth Siddle, she's doing a very good impression of an older woman. It Maybe. Okay, no, I believe you. Well, they've made her look a lot less conventionally attractive than in later paintings then. I would not have known, so thank you for pointing that out. Usually Elizabeth Siddle looks extremely ethereally beautiful in these paintings, and in fact I think that the PRB are pretty lucky to have her. They're talented painters, but she has unique beauty, which I think comes to define the pre-Raphaelite look. What's great about it is it's a little bit weird. She's not chocolate box pretty. And I think her like strangeness, like modern supermodels who don't always look like the prettiest girls in class, it brings a kind of tension to their paintings, which would otherwise just be a lot of fruit. After the 1850 exhibition and the horrid criticism that they faced, it led to commissions that they had already secured suddenly falling through and their funds began to dry up. So for people like Hunt and Rossetti, that was really, really important because they were artists, but they also needed to make a living and afford basic things like rent, and they ended up being turfed out of their digs, and Hunt had to move elsewhere. Millet was better off, obviously, and and the lack of funds didn't set him too off track. The criticism and lack of money led to two of the less important members actually backing out and leaving the Brotherhood altogether. They're such minor figures in art history, we've forgotten to name them. So during this troubling and testing time, Millet and Hunt continued to work with intensity and purpose. But meanwhile, Rossetti kind of slumped into a depression and his ego was maybe a bit too fragile and he kind of just gave up on art a little bit. Elizabeth also faced criticism as a model and the press just said she was a bad choice. If it wasn't bad enough that people assumed she was a kind of quasi-sex worker because of her position as a model, her working conditions as well were really quite bad, as she had to pose for painfully long hours in one position and wasn't paid that much in the first place. After the summer exhibition, the PRB, or what was left of them, licked their wounds. They knew that next year's exhibition in 1851 was make or break. 1851 was a massive year for art in London, as the Great Exhibition was coming. The Great Exhibition at the Crystal Palace, which was a literal glass palace erected in Hyde Park, was an exhibition which brought together all of the most amazing inventions, all of the like best art of pretty much the whole world, all across the British Empire, and displayed it in one place. It was the most mind-blowing thing. And if you're wondering whether the Crystal Palace has got anything to do with Crystal Palace location, you'd in be South right. London. Because after the great success in Hyde Park, they literally, glass pane by glass pane, dissembled the Crystal Palace in Hyde Park and put it up again in a park, which then became known as Crystal Palace. Hooray! And then everyone could go and see Crystal Palace for all of time. Until it burnt down and now it's just foundations and staircases. It's just a really scrubby park. The Great Exhibition brought a lot of attention to London, but what was great was it brought lots of attention to art. 
Tourists flocked to the Royal Academy. Attendance for the summer exhibition in 1851 was up 40% on the previous year. Remember how heaving that was. One attendee of this year's summer exhibition was one John Ruskin and his wife, Effie Gray. So John Ruskin and Effie are in themselves a great story, which we just don't have the time to go into in any detail. But Ruskin himself was just really important in the pre-Raphaelite story because of his influence. He's absolutely crucial. So they're an enormously low ebb. They've had this really scandalous exhibition where the press went to town on them. They had no money. They'd been evicted. They thought their careers were over. Everyone was like fighting and slagging each other off. People had left the country to get away from this scandal. And their best friend Lizzie is being treated like a prostitute by the press. But Ruskin is a really well-regarded art critic. Like, he's major even today. He started writing this series of books called Modern Painters when he was just 24, and he's, like, such a prodigy. And the press thought that he was going to come and see these paintings by the pre-Raphaelites and totally go to town on them, like, write loads of reviews, slagging them off. But what actually happened was he went, he saw them, he fell in love, and instead of slagging them off to all and sundry, he really praised them. He saves the pre-Raphaelites from total career death and social annihilation. Ruskin had his letters published in all the newspapers. He was a major figure. So when he wrote to the Times saying that the pre-Raphaelites were a school of art nobler than the world has seen for 300 years, it meant something to people. So obviously the tides of fortune had turned and Millet and Hunt couldn't have been more happy. So they obviously wrote to Ruskin to say thank you so much. (laughs) And in response, Ruskin just turned up the next day with Effie at Millet's house and they soon hit off a great friendship. Millet and Ruskin had a lot in common, they could chat about art and they spent the rest of the summer pretty much together. Effie, Ruskin's wife, is a really interesting character and she's important in the pre-Raphaelite story but her real fame comes from the fact that Ruskin was a, treated her really badly. He basically seduced her, and then as soon as he was married to her, disregarded her entirely. So as a result of this, Effie was really lonely, and she got a really bad reputation for having kind of gentleman friends and be having affairs. So not only was she personally rejected by Ruskin, but she had really bad stock in the high society that she circulated in. That really matters as well. That's your whole life. You can't just like shrug that kind of thing off. So after years of semi-abuse from Ruskin, by this point when this friendship with Millet started, she had little to lose, and in an act kind of not really befitting of her class, she decided she'd start modelling for Millet. Meanwhile, Rossetti, remember him, was still moping. He was no longer in the inner circle with Hunt and Millet. His ego couldn't face being left out. And on top of all of that, Ruskin wasn't praising him, he was praising his friends. Rossetti's focus shifted away from the art to Lizzie Siddle, who he was getting increasingly close to. If Lizzie wasn't already important enough as a general muse to the pre-Raphaelites, it's fitting that she became immortalised as the model for arguably the most iconic pre-Raphaelite painting, Ophelia. Now, I'm a little bit of a philistine when it comes to art, and the great works of art are all kind of vaguely familiar to me, but I couldn't tell you who or when or what the art's about. Whilst I've been to Florence and whilst there I've seen Botticelli's Venus and I have with Satu been to MoMA in New York and have seen things like Starry Night by Van Gogh. All right. (laughs) (laughs) 
But when I'm there, my thoughts are less about the art and more about the familiarity of it in modern culture. So Ophelia is one of those paintings. I see it and it means something to me, even though I'm not quite sure why or how. Totally, because you've seen it somewhere before. So that painting is really, really famous. I think that anyone listening, even if painting isn't really your thing, I think this is one of those few paintings that you would recognise, like you've, you've mentioned a few just then. A great thing about this is that it really encapsulates that kind of perfect, tragic Victorian lady. And it's caused a lot of confused tweeny ideas about what being a beautiful grown-up lady looks like. Millet's Ophelia is tragic and self-sacrificing, but crucially also desirable. It's also a really beautiful painting. The PRBs like to paint straight onto a white background rather than a sort of murky brown background like a lot of paintings from the past are quite brown and this is why their colors are so bright and punchy but here Millet hasn't gone to town he's kept a grip on the color palette it's just green and white with just a few little bright colors in the flowers that Ophelia holds in her hand which trail invitingly towards her tiny waist which is handily still on display in the stream. So Millet had painted Ophelia And at the Royal Exhibition in 1952, the year after their great success under Ruskin's patronage, Millet displayed Ophelia, and it was a huge hit. There were queues out the door to see it, and the critics were largely all but silenced. Even the likes of Punch magazine, who just the previous year caricatured Lizzie, showing her as a balloon head (laughs) on top of a popsicle stick now explained that seeing Ophelia was the happiest hour that I have ever spent in the Royal Academy exhibition. Millet, the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood and Lizzie were now all stars. But Lizzie earned her stardom and in order to pose for Ophelia, she had to sit in a freezing cold bath for hours on end and became really ill as a result. So ill that her family then tried to sue Millet for the loss of her earnings and doctor's bills while she was out of action. But the whole experience didn't make Lizzie meek. No, she became more powerful and more outspoken as a result of her fame. And bearing in mind, at this point, she was only 19 years old. It's no surprise she was only getting into her groove. So on top of being a model, which is not an easy job, she was a genuinely talented artist, so much so that Ruskin, who is a fosspot, gave her £150 a year to help her make art. That's what I mean about Ruskin supporting art. He did write a lot, but, you know, he could have just been doing that for his own benefit. But he was there with practical help, so artists like Siddle could have time from the hat shop to make things. She had no training, because obviously she couldn't go to the Royal Academy. She had no resources of her own. I think it's really important that he did that, because there are actually quite a lot of women artists to come later in the pre-Raphaelite movement. No spoilers, it's a success. (laughs) But, you know, they painted an awful lot of women. They made them sit in baths. I think that women themselves should get some of the benefit. Absolutely. And speaking of women having some of the benefit... 1852 was a success with Ophelia, and so Millet had to follow it up by an even greater work of art next year in 1853. The sophomore album. As I mentioned earlier, Effie, John Ruskin's wife, started to model for Millet, and Ruskin actually invited Millet to his house in Denmark Hill, Denmark Hill at the time being a village, in order to paint Effie. And what became was a painting called The Order of Release, 
And when it was displayed at the Royal Academy in 1853, it was an other huge hit, so much so that policemen had to guard the painting to ensure that a scrum didn't get too close to it. And as a result of this, Effie also became a national celebrity. Not that Ruskin really cared, he didn't even bother to come and see the painting. So with Ruskin's ambivalence, her new fame and her new closeness with Millet, it wasn't a huge surprise to learn that Effie and Millet were falling in love. Millet had become by far the most visible and successful of the PRB. And while his successes proved the artistic worth of the whole movement, it also made the mainstream. Mainstream isn't cool. And it also wasn't part of the plan. When they put together the original Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, no one wanted to become part of the Royal Academy. They wanted to be cool, rebellious young dudes. <laughs> the final nail in the coffin of the Brotherhood came in November 1853, when Millet put his name forward and then became an associate of the Royal Academy. He was now part of the establishment. And so... Rossetti's brother, who was the secretary of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, wrote to his sister in November 1853 that the round table is dissolved. And with that, the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood was disbanded and they all went their separate ways. Sad, it's the end of an era. But the story doesn't end for all of them there. Whilst the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood in London was over, they all went on to do great things of varying degrees of success. For example... Millet and Effie uh, got married and had Yay. eight or ten kids together. <laughs> eight or ten. Living, I can't remember, living, you know, a happy life together after Ruskin was out of the picture. You hate Ruskin. <laughs> uh, Rossetti did get his moto back. He did begin to paint again. And he went on to be a really important strand in pre-Raphaelite painting too. Him and Lizzie continued their relationship, but... It was snatched from them too early because, unfortunately, Lizzie died at a really young age. She was Rossetti's one true love. He did remarry, but I don't think anyone held a candle to to Lizzie. It's it's really sad because she probably would have gone on to become a, a great artist and really all we have is just a few little pieces by her. And then finally, Hunt emigrated to Jerusalem. Did he? Yeah. I've got so little time for him. His paintings are hideous. Lizzie hated Hunt. No one really likes Hunt. But their legacy was that they set up the pre-Raphaelite movement. Which, I mean, it's absolutely the key Victorian art movement. From 1853 onwards, let's say, it's, it's the prevailing look and it doesn't get done away with until the First World War. That's a really long time to be a big deal in art. I've got one more question. What does this pre-Raphaelite art actually say about London? Their paintings are all of kind of fields from the Bible and really like lovely ye olde Englandy kind of scenes. But they grew up in London, you know, even Ruskin, their champion, was born and grew up in South London. My theory is that the realism part is about the Industrial Revolution and how you can't just pretend things are the old days anymore so they're kind of doing gritty realism but then they really needed some escapism from city life and that's where all of these very elaborate fantastical scenes of all these leaves and gardens and wonderful things that's their dream landscape really isn't it for me i think the interesting angle 
is that it was precisely because this brotherhood lived in London, which was a dynamic city during a dynamic time, a social revolution, was why they were able to find an audience to allow them to challenge the convention of the art establishment and kind of come up with this new style of painting. For me, London is special because it gives people space to explore these ideas and buck the trend. And this is something I don't think that's changed much from 1848 to today. Go London. And in London, they were able to find their people, the people who really got them and shared their vision. And that's how they were able to make amazing things together. Thank you for listening to Fierce City, telling the tales of our very favourite city in the world and our home, London. I'll put all the paintings we've mentioned in this episode up on our website, fiercecity.co.uk, so you can see if you agree with our analysis. If you like our podcast, then please subscribe or write us a review. You can also email us at londonhistorypodcast at gmail.com if you want to just get in touch to say hello or let us know if there's any topics you'd be interested to hear. You can also tweet us at FierceCityPod. Fierce City was written and produced by the two voices you have heard. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.